And welcome everyone. As we begin each Tuesday, <clears throat> I think about the time zones in my mind, my, my imagination begins to go across the globe. It's early morning here in Hawaii. And I go against the sun back towards the west coast of the United States. And so many of you are on central time, midday. And then past uh, the central U.S. to the east coast a little bit early in the afternoon across the Atlantic to our friends in the U.K. and then the continent of Europe and the early evening hours. But there's a large uh, umbrella of care as we sit together. So let's begin our sitting uh, for and with the entire world. Each time that we meet and sit together in this way, in just these few precious moments of silence and stillness before we speak a bit more, we're sitting to relinquish, to let go of all of our plans and efforts and even ideas about the world, our personal perspective about things, and just open to what is in the silence and stillness. We let go of our personal agenda and open to the world, which is counter to a common way of thinking of meditation as closing out the world and turning toward our personal agenda for improvement. This isn't a going inside to work on ourselves and closing out the world so we can do that in peace. This is a letting go of our agendas for ourselves and the world so we can rest in a peace that's beyond anything we might even imagine and letting the world come to us as it will, even if it's not what we prefer. And in doing so, our strife and suffering begins to fade.
So rather than an inward turn to block out the difficult world, there's an opening and a settling to meet the world, which includes ourselves, of course. And this turn is what is spoken of in our four practice principles. So in just a moment, when I ring the bell, rather than engaging in our usual form, which is to chant the verse of the robe, instead, we'll begin with what we typically chant at the end, the four practice principles. The one that begins caught in the self-centered dream. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. I want to speak just a bit as a, our prompt for inquiry about a very, very early teaching of the Buddha, well before Chan developed in China or Zen in Japan. And you'll understand why it's been on my mind. Um, and I hope it uh, invites um, some reflection and some questions and possibilities of a little more freedom for yourself. And one of the very first uh, talks that the Buddha gave early on, he was speaking to a group of people in Northern India who engaged in an esoteric practice of worshiping fire. And so he um, decided as a rhetorical tool to use his image of fire to speak about uh, the teachings. And if he was speaking to them, he would call them bhikkhus because that's the name that in the language of the time uh, spoke to the monks. And one translation, um, a little more faithful translation to the famous line from this uh, talk, he said, bhikkhus, all is burning. All is burning. Now we have the quite literal manifestation of the fires right now, which it's very hard to 
um, to ignore because they're so, so potent. Another translation that is sometimes uh, opens this statement up that's given is uh, the whole world is burning, attributed to the Buddha, the whole world, everything is burning. And I, I don't want to give an academic talk about this early uh, sermon or, or the etymology of the words even so much as what it speaks to uh, for us now and how it relates to these four practice principles that, that we just chanted. All is burning. The whole world is burning. The all, by the way, uh, Saba in Sanskrit, um, is a description of the, the senses, you know, eyes and ears and nose and all the senses and the sounds and smells and tastes that go with that. Also, consciousness that comes from that sensory contact with the world and how it sets us in relationship things. So it's all of this, basically, he's speaking about the ways that we meet the world. All is, what is burning? The ways that we meet the world. And then the burning, that word, is, he, he spoke about it, it's a combination of the, the fire of uh, passion, the, the fires of aversion, of delusion, also just the manifestations of suffering and old age and death and sorrow. These are the same things that he spoke about in the Four Noble Truths in, in Dukkha, but also in the Second Noble Truth about our reactivity. So burning here is talking about our reactions to suffering. So just a little bit. All is burning. The ways we meet the world. All the different ways we meet the world. Sets up our reactions to the ways that we meet the world. Which is suffering. We have a certain way of meeting things. We react to it. And that's the cause of suffering. Not things don't cause the suffering. Those are causes and conditions. The way we react is the burning. So <clears throat> we reflect on the ways we meet the world, how we use the sensory, um, bodily, and mental data to then construct our world and react to it. That's the context he was attempting to set for people. And then he spoke about a little formula which shows up over and over and over in the sutras. And the classic formulation goes something like this. So these are a little uh, old-fashioned words and they set you in a certain kind of direction. He said, disenchanted, this is the waking up bit. Disenchanted, she becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, she's fully released. With full release, there is the knowledge fully released. She discerns that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. 
There's nothing further for this world. So once again, that's um, a bit um, older language, but let's just reflect for a moment on what it might mean for us in our, our practice. The whole world is burning. Our way of meeting the world is, is, is burning, the way we react. Disenchanted, she becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, she's fully released and on to this thing about the task is done. Could it be said this way? No longer caught in the self-centered dream. A person quiets self-centered thoughts. No more enchantment, less burning. When self-centered thoughts quiet down, there's an easing from the habits of conditioned reactivity. The fires begin to quell. With the release from the habits of reactivity, simple present moment awareness opens and comes to the fore. This knowledge of release. This awareness Awareness only, not my awareness, but awareness only, doesn't actually move, has no preference, doesn't cling to things or push away things, is clear and unconfused, and is completely free to respond to the moment. And this is what I believe that the Buddha was suggesting for us. No longer caught in the self-centered dream, a person quiets self-centered thoughts, the way we construct the world. When self-centered thoughts quiet down, there's an easing from the habits, the automatic conditioning, automatic reactivity. And with the release of this habitual way of kind of a sleep way of meeting the world, simple present moment awareness comes to the fore. It opens. It's always there, always with us, always on our side. And this is an awareness that isn't personal, that doesn't contain preferences, that isn't about likes and dislikes, clinging, pushing away. It's not about confusion or clarity. It's a clearer mirror that is completely free to respond to what's in in front of the person. And you remember that interesting little phrase in the classic formulation, the task is done. There is nothing further for this world. And uh, it was a, an old way of talking about no rebirth, things are done. But if we take that out of the formulation for a moment and don't get into arguments about birth or rebirth, which we can say that actually by no, being no longer caught in the self-centered dream, we're no longer recreating, rebirthing the same patterns of suffering for ourselves and for others. We're not killing anything either. We're just not recreating the same old patterns. Maybe it's better to talk about the four tasks which Stephen Batchelor calls them, which map on to the classic four 
practice principles or in the, the very old way, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Four Noble Truths. He would say them this way, briefly. First, embrace suffering. Two, let our reactive emotions be. Three, see the stopping of reactivity and respond with care. It's just another formulation of the same thing. Embrace suffering sounds strange when you think of the ways in which uh, Buddhist teachings are often taught as the end of suffering. Embrace suffering? On a practical everyday basis, the lives that, that you and I actually live, to step back into basic awareness, which we do when we sit. We step back and rather getting busy working, we open, we unblend, we say sometimes, with the reactivity and rest in this primary awareness and turn toward. We don't unblend to get things to go away. We step back so we can meet the inevitable. Someone asked me yesterday in a group to remind them of the first line of my TED talk where I said, my message today is not about changing the world. It's about how to meet a world that never stops changing. All is burning. Everything is burning. This is the inevitable. We step back so we can meet the inevitable. It's not an accident. It's not a failure. This is the way things are. And as John Tarrant once famously said, Zen teacher, there are no circumstances under which it is wise to refuse life. The refusal is our suffering. The turning toward is our freedom. So we're choosing suffering in a way, not like, hooray, I'm suffering. This is what's happening. I'm going to embrace what is happening. Number two, let our reactive emotions be. It doesn't mean passively like, oh, well, I feel bad, but to not feed our reactivity, to not have something that wells up and then another part react to that and another try to, it, that ongoing sequence of reactivity builds a self. And there are ways in which as we embrace suffering or look at what's happening, the inevitable, learn by sitting, opening, turning toward, that we can step into a larger space to meet each moment rather than trying to change it or get rid of it. Not to feed our emotions. The Buddha said, when asked what to do with difficult emotions, he said, gaze upon them with kindness and remain still. Embrace suffering, let our reactive emotions be. Three, see, apprehend, appreciate the stopping of reactivity. It's like becoming the container, the bowl that holds what's happening with deep intimacy so that we can step forward into care. It's building the container so that we don't and the image he used and far, for the fire worshipers, the Buddha said, if you put an earth bank around a fire and hold it, you can use the energy 
if you cover up the fire, you lose all the energy, the possibilities, its function. If you don't have the earth bank, you can burn everything else around us. This is the burning. So the stopping of the reactivity is the containment of the inevitable and the embracing that this is what a life is. It's not some ideal or idea. And then four, we'll re-embrace the suffering, let our reactive emotions be, see this stopping and contain it, and respond with care. Mindful, diligent care in the world through wise and compassionate action. This is in part the definition of apamada that we use as the name for our center. So let's, let's look at some practical examples of this then just briefly. If we use this, these four tasks, and now we have some tasks to do rather than some final task that gets us away from life, is a task to enter life more deeply. When facing a climate emergency that threatens the viability of intelligent life on Earth, this would entail embracing the possibility of extinction, not being paralyzed by the fear of extinction. And I'm saying it in the most extreme, dwelling in a space of fearless awareness and from there responding appropriately to the threats that face us and future generations. And by the way, this small formulation has come from Stephen Batchelor's um, recent essay in the fall issue of Tricycle Magazine, but I wanted to use it as a as an example of the formulation of embracing suffering, allowing the, our emotions to be seeing the release and responding with care. For a climate emergency, that would be the extreme. The four tasks flesh out what it means to care. And for the Buddha, care was the cardinal virtue that encompasses all the others. His final recorded words were, things fall apart. Tread the path with care. Things, everything falls apart. Tread the path with care. I walked up my driveway this morning to get the hibiscus that you see behind me. And I could feel the clutching inside as I looked at which plants needed help, which ones were fading, which ones were doing well, the vision of how I wished my garden to be, the concerns I had about how it actually was. And I thought, oh, this is, this is it, isn't it? This is just how it goes. And I practiced for a moment, letting go, embracing the possibility that everything will die not being paralyzed by the fear of everything not going like I thought it would be, dwelling in a space of less fearful awareness so that I could then just simply care for the garden. Like last week when I spoke about what's the use, what's the reason for living is to live to, with care. So facing a climate emergency, you'd see those four tasks. What about facing political upheaval? Everything is burning. When facing political upheaval that threatens the viability of an established form of government, that this would entail, one, embracing the possibility that our current form of political life 
might be eroded or even lost. Once again, I'm saying it in the extreme. Two, not being paralyzed by either terror or rage created by the chaos, distraction, and destruction. Not being paralyzed. Three, dwelling in a space of more fearless awareness. And from there, responding appropriately to the threats as they unfold and the needs of our fellow citizens. These are our tasks in practice. One more example, when faced with civic upheaval that threatens the safety and peace of our communities, this would entail embracing the possibility that our old, stable, but terribly flawed way of relating to each other might fall apart. People might get hurt. More turbulence might replace the painful old balance. Two, not being paralyzed by either horror or hatred created by these changes, protests, demands, and reorientations to ourselves and to others. Three, dwelling in a space of more fearless awareness and from there responding appropriately by participating new, more awake, more free and just society. All is burning. Carry forward with care. <clears throat> The ultimate reflection that the Buddha suggested was on death itself. Death is certain. The time of our death is uncertain. How should we live now? This is a theme that actually I've been reflecting on in the last few weeks, as you know. And we could take it out further. I know these are distressing sounding things, but there are ways of realizing that our practice is central to what we're doing now and the ways that we cling to it has to be a certain way cause more problems. It doesn't mean that we become passive. It means we fearlessly and powerfully let go of the things that we attach ourselves to so that we can really be a force for good. In terms of climate, extinction might be certain. The time of extinction is uncertain. How shall we live now? Probably true in some grand, huge scale. The same formulation. The end of the American historical legacy is certain. Probably at some point. The time of its end is uncertain. How shall we live now? Civically, this, the end of systemic racism is certain. The time of its end is uncertain. How shall we live now? You can use this formulation. Look at all is burning. Everything is burning. The fires of greed, the fires of dislike, the fire of stupidity. And the Buddha understood that a world ablaze with these fires. He understood it to be barren, arid, a wasteland where nothing grows or flourishes. 
So it's important to embrace suffering, to turn toward it, let our reactions be and turn toward what's there, to see that that stopping of reactivity allows us to contain and work with the energies of an actual life and to then respond to care. Things fall apart. Tread the path of care. Things fall apart. Tread the path of care. That's our job. And that's our practice. So, if this calls forward questions you have about your own practice or things that you'd like to meet, please raise your hand so that we can that we can meet, so we can enact the turning toward, the holding, the responding with care. We together enact the containment that allows something possible to happen that's different. Hello, Sheila. Well, I ended the last... I mean, I was speaking, I was crying yeah. <laughs> at the last session. And uh, I heard, I listened to you go through those three things that are falling apart, burning now. And the, the, I heard two major reactions, hate and fear, mm -hmm. terror and no horror. And mm -hmm. I didn't hear the sorrow, I didn't hear the weeping. And that's yeah, why... That's why I had been experiencing so much. The tears are so close to the surface. Yes, yeah. uh, one of the existentialists, I'm not remembering right now which one it was that, that said something about it ends in weeping or it ends in... Uh, Albert Camus said, live to the point of tears. Camus, right, right. He's, mm -hmm. okay. Okay, so, um, and I started crying with Charles and I hope we get to hear about his cat. <laughs> today um but that those things have been things that have brought tears you know along with just a book i'm reading or whatever and, so you're talking, you wanted to make sure that we included sorrow and the whole field of anguish and all of its flavors well at least for me i wanted to deal with it yeah and i don't want to make it go away i kind of like to cry it kind of feels good yeah, sometimes that's a relief, isn't it? It's very human. And I've even learned a method to try to control it when I really need to not cry for some practical reason. Just mm -hmm. flare my nostrils. You know, that's the anger response. <laughs> but anyway, I just want to say thank you for the thorough review of those three circumstances going on in our lives right now. The climate, the democracy, the racial. Mm -hmm issues they seem yeah. to be the some of the three largest fires right now so i thought it'd be useful to speak with them. indeed and my sorrow that and i'll start to cry right now thinking about it so i'll just close with that but i'm just glad to have oh. your clarity yeah. and your presentation to thank help. you so as each person now comes after you hold them in that space in the world Thank you. Thank you. Oh, there he is.
I flint. <laughs> Just took a moment to get you through, huh? Well, it did. Uh, my computer is always slow like that. I apologize. Okay, that's okay. It's patience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a conversation recently where we, we were talking about the difference between compassion and empathy, a subject which I've gone over and over and I, I just, it's like Carl Sagan explaining how the universe is curved. I get it while we're talking about it and five minutes later it's gone out of my head. Um, it's not so, the most important thing anyway, it's how it's expressed. Say again? That's not the most important thing anyway. It's how it's actually expressed in your life and in your body, in your relationships. Those distinctions, I, I lose also, but I don't want to lose my concern for you, my care for you, my welling up when you talk about your cat, my hanging in there, uh, waiting for you to come online. All that is empathy and compassion. You're saying the difference is less important than how we express empathy and compassion. Yeah. The, the distinctions are important as a reflection so we can kind of understand things when sometimes we get a little off. But once again, in the midst of the, when the going gets rough, it's going to just move through you in the way that you've made space in your practice for it to move. It might be constricted, it might be distorted, it might be clear, it might be beautiful, it might be generous, it might not be. That's what makes the difference. When I feel your pain like it's my pain, then I'm being empathic. Yeah. I respond to that resonance in a way that is containing and holding for you, then I'm being compassionate, offering my love. Okay. One of the people in this conversation suggested something, suggested that the difference might be whether the ego is engaged. That in empathy, um, your, your ego comes into it so that you're, you're feeling it personally. And in compassion, your ego is, is not engaged. So you're able to be present without the, without feeling it yourself that you're being affected by it. That's an idealistic version. Yes. Idealistic. Yeah. Uh, you can act, once again, let's get to the practicalities. You can act with empathy um, because you can feel what the other person is feeling. And psychopaths can do that and therefore they can hurt someone mightily because they know exactly where to get them but empathy is necessary for deep care so once again it's it's how is it expressed you can be com compassionate in that selfless way which is quite generous or you can act compassionately for selfish reasons because it might get you what you want so once again, it's not the behavior in so much as where it's coming from. Okay. That's okay. That's a much more useful uh -huh. distinction. Yeah. And 
feels much more organic. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's worth paying attention to and the distinctions are important, but just not so much argumentatively, but in actuality. If someone is acting kind toward you, you can feel if there's some personal agenda, you can feel if they are in the way, you can feel sure. it's a different feel. And that's not about judgment or criticism. We all have variations of this. But if our aspiration is to not have ourselves in the way, and that's why we pay attention like we do and practice like we do so we can have a, a clearer kind of awareness that isn't my awareness, it's the awareness. Okay. So I can walk through the garden instead of seeing it how I want it to be and fretting over it. Yes. I can just water and weed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you. How, how's the kitty? Um, she died Saturday morning. Um, I had spent a week agonizing over the ethics of euthanasia and whether I had the right to <clears throat> to intervene in her natural death and finally decided that I had, that I didn't know enough to expose her to the possibility of suffering at the end. So I had um, scheduled a visit by a home euthanasia vet and um, Elgin died an hour before the vet was to come. Cats always have the last word. Yeah. Who is the more compassionate in this case? <laughs> um, it's the first time I've gotten to watch an animal die. And it was as peaceful a death as I've ever seen. So I have a lot of grief, but all kinds of gratitude to her. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, it's important. You're still muted, Penny. There we go. Well, I want to thank you for this amazing teaching that you gave today because um, I, I just, it's so applicable to what's happening in Central Texas here today. I don't know if probably everybody's read this or not, uh, but, you know, we've been having just outbursts of hatred and uh, Trump parades that uh, hundreds of cars line up and, um, you know, it's a very kind of violent uh, crowd. And so um, they had taken a Black Lives Matter flag and attached it to the bottom of the pickup truck, like underneath the pickup truck and dragged it. And so there's a lot of outrage in the community about that. And so I was wondering, how could I deal with that, you know? And um, then anyway, so uh, what I did was write to the mayor and the city council and uh, talked about, you know, trying to have in other words, a more compassionate approach in our city. 
and uh, how could we, we could do that. And so I referred them to the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, because they have a wonderful program for teaching for tolerance and suggested trying to do something concrete that, you know, they could go and maybe there's, they could find helpful programs. And um, so I haven't heard anything back from either one of the council people or the uh, mayor, but that's okay. And then I wrote a letter to a very wonderful woman who's a doctor and uh, in New Braunfels who leads the Martin Luther King, King group there and uh, just a letter of support. And so I tried to do, you know, being an older person with COVID, I didn't feel like I could be going out and protesting and everything, but, um, and then this yesterday or this morning, there's a new headline about there was a huge billboard on I-35 saying used Mexicans and uh, they've gotten the person to take that down, but that's right. The location of that was right where all the trucks gather for the, the parades, the, the beginning of the parades. So it's very, as a citizen, it's, it's very concerning that all this, this hatred is just like popping Everything. up. Everything is burning. So how do you practice? And you're saying one of your practices is to reach out. Remember the, the last step was compassionate care to reach out and offer something. And without, there's another, without making it more complicated, there's another four things you've heard me say before, which com comes from a cultural anthropologist, Anjali's Arians. And she says, show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't be attached to the outcome. And there's our practice edge. Actually show up, be fully present. Tell the truth, be the truth as best you can. But show up, pay attention, open to your wisdom, tell the truth, and then you have to let go of the outcome and keep doing your best. That's a really good step. <laughs> yes. So keep doing your best and then accept what comes next. Keep cards and letters coming. <laughs> and then the next, and then because the, each thing is the next thing. The whole world is burning. Thank you. Just thank you. Hello, Eileen. Hi, Flint. Um, I appreciate the previous uh, uh, previous speaker Penny's comments. But also, I want to thank you for your talk today. Uh, so uh, practical and uh, useful uh, for me today. Uh, kind of what's going on with me is sort of in it's in in two fronts. There's kind of the personal and then the collective. The looking at trying to see racial injustice and my role in it clearly. I've been looking at that with care and I've gotten as far as realizing that perhaps how I see myself is not correct. Mm -hmm. I've gotten that far. I'm not sure that's really true. I may be right about what I think I am, but there's a good, good doubt there, good doubt there. You just assume there's probably some distortion. 
Yes, there's good, but I, and I can't, I, I don't know what it is yet. Uh, and, and I'm continuing to look. But also when, in, in, the, in the personal domain, I am beginning to have occasions of ceasing reactivity, the second moments, times when that happens, where you have that, the release and, and the calm. And I am wondering though, as I am questioning, you know, what is going on, I'm wondering what is the difference between ceasing reactivity or like how might we recognize that compared to apathy or indifference? Mm -hmm. That's a really okay. good question. Yeah, and, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Well, my first thought as you say it is that apathy and indifference are actually um, part of the self-centered dream because there are more managers attempting to continue to manage, to protect the self. Whereas dropping away, the concern is not the protection of the self. The concern is to meet whatever is coming more fully. Now, that may be a little abstract still. No, I understand it. I'm not sure that I'll know how to recognize the difference, but maybe I don't need to. <laughs> Well, I think it's important to attempt to recognize the difference. It's just we have to be very patient with ourselves, knowing that it's just going to be a bit messy. Okay. But, but for you to ask the question says that you're trying to move into an ethical place of integrity around this issue, which is different than just trying to get it right. Because as soon as you try to do that, you're back into the right, wrong, good, bad, literally black and white of it and you're gonna cause more problems. It, it has to be softly held, it has to be contingent. You have to keep the question open. And when you're doing that, you're not gonna move into apathy because that's a final decision. Or despair, that's a final position. You can't move into any final position. Everything is changing, everything is burning, everything is impermanent. Stay engaged with the movement. There's life in it. Okay. Life is. Knowing that you may not get it right, that, that's, that's the idealistic thing. It's not going to get it right. But can you be in accord with what's good and true? And keep trying. Yeah, keep trying. Okay. Thank you. It's a wonderful question. Thank you. Greetings, Catherine. Hi, Frank. While you were talking, I just felt a huge need to make more contact. Uh, I'm finding, uh, you, you were talking about the situation in America, and that's good. But in Britain, I'm finding it very hard to uh, keep out a sense of a sense of shame at, at the breaking of, in, of a, an international uh, international law. Mm -hmm. And one of the things 
I'm noticing is an absolute repugnance, feeling of repugnance towards Boris Johnson to the point where I find it hard to listen to his voice. And I've started turning off the news because I just find it's full of lies and a kind of sub churchillian ridiculous but dangerous rhetoric that treats the rest of the world as enemies. Europe is our enemy. And I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of wanting connect. It feels, I, I was thinking when you were talking that one dimension of this is that we don't have to face this on our own. And yeah. that's very important to me to feel part of the Sangha and that we're all facing this. But at the moment, we're just being together on Zoom. And what I feel is physically frightened and physically revolted by what's going on. So just wanted to say that and have a connection with you. Well, let's make it even more personal, okay? Mm. Bad things are happening. Yeah. Worse things might happen. I'll hold your hand no matter what. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I know, I know. Because that's the bottom line, but it's important to say it that clearly, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep thinking that we all have to hold each other's hands. Exactly, Pre precisely, precisely. And that's the only way through. And, and, and maybe I, it doesn't matter that I I can't listen to Boris, you, you know, maybe it's not about me not being able to bear to listen to Boris Johnson, but that we hold hands and face and face what's, right, right, right. what's coming. So, um, you don't get extra points for the ability to listen to him. <laughs> you don't get extra points for your rejecting him. No. You turn towards what can I do? What's my version of care that I can make? And how can I do that together? Yeah. With others. With others. With the, with other, with, not just the Sangha, but that's what first comes to me. The solidarity, kind of solidarity of the Sangha. We start with our friends so that we can turn toward the larger world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I keep thinking, because... My garden is giving me a lot of solace. And I keep thinking about the poet that you talked about, who said that he, on his last day, in other words, no matter what, he would be planting trees. Yes. I, yeah. I hold on to that. That's, that's what I hold on to as well. It's like, I'll continue to make this good effort in the service of this garden, no matter what happens. Because yeah. that's, that's what I, I, that gives me, great joy is what I love to do. Yeah. And it's something concrete and solid. Right. Yeah. And that's what I do in this garden. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Catherine. We might have time for one more. Hi, Liz. Hi, Flint. 
Um, I'm, I want to be sensitive to the time, but one thing you shared um, that I wanted to just put voice to is you were talking about, you were really prefacing everything you spoke to by saying this is the extreme. Oh, but it, extinction or the end of American culture. At all. Yeah, but it's extreme. It is extreme. <laughs> Where we're at right now, it's happening. It's extreme. So for me, I feel like the suffering is when I try to deny the extremity of it. So I was thinking about two particular scenarios. One was when we had a COVID test because Mark's parents got COVID oh. we were with them. So we got tested and I was sitting in the car in a line of cars with a woman in a hazmat suit, swabbing noses. And I thought to myself, this is so bizarre that I am sitting here in a car looking at a woman in a hazmat suit, swabbing our noses. But it's like, if I stay really close to the experience, it's like, okay, here I am sitting in my car waiting to have my nose swiped, you know? And then- With smoke and ash. Right, and, and that was the other experience was I was on a stand-up paddleboard on a reservoir where I live with ash coming into my mouth. So you had to abandon the day. And I'm thinking, there's ash coming into my mouth that's falling from the sky right now. It's extreme. And, well, that's, and we're living I in it. it I, I said the extreme. I'm just trying to soften it to people that would say to me in my imagination, well, you're only saying the extreme, but actually, yeah. But but what you're saying about embracing suffering, that's what it feels like to me, is cozying right on up to that experience that feels like, how can this be happening right now? And, and if what? I try to compare it to something quote unquote normal and okay. say, I never thought I'd be on a stand-up paddleboard with ash coming into my mouth falling from the sky. No, it's in like, a beautiful lake outside of Fort Collins, Colorado. <laughs> Yeah. And, and also really embracing this sense of being compassionate because, you know, I never lived somewhere where there was ash falling from the sky, right? No. And I just held compassionate space for a dear friend of mine who was an evacuee from Oregon who can't go home because Oregon's letting itself burn because mm -hmm. it can't do anything else, mm -hmm. you know? So I just wanted to say thank you for putting voice to it and for talking about the extremes for us to just stand with the extremes as they are now and give us skills to meet it, you know? Yeah, and thank you for saying that. It's important to stand with, and as Catherine said, to stand close as we do. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you, Lynn. And since we're at the end of our time, um, let's complete with the verse that we would normally do in the beginning. Because in some ways, it's the reminder of the awareness that we open to in this difficulty. It's the task that opens us. Uh, so we'll, we'll chant the, the verse of the robe and listen as you, as you chant it and feel in your body as you say it out loud of how it gives us the direction. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, 
thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Flint, and thank you, everybody. Apamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support makes a huge difference. There's a link for contributions on the website at apamata.org. Oh, and if you are interested in the uh, after inquiry meeting, please feel free to go on over to that link that you'll find on the calendar right now. Thank you.